Section six of Now It Can Be Told by Philip Gibbs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two, chapters ten to fifteen. Chapter ten. Here and there on the roadsides behind the lines, queer sacks hung from wooden poles. They had round red discs painted on them and looked like the trunks of human bodies after Red Indians had been doing decorative work with their enemies slain. At Flixicot, near Amiens, I passed one on a Sunday when bells were ringing for high mass and a crowd of young soldiers were trooping into the field with fixed bayonets. A friend of mine, an ironical fellow, nudged me and said, Sunday school for young Christians, and made a hideous face, very comical. It was a bayonet school of instruction, and O.C. Bayonets, Colonel Ronald Campbell, was giving a little demonstration. It was a curiously interesting form of exercise. It was as though the primitive nature in man, which had been sleeping through the centuries, was suddenly awakened in the souls of these cockney soldier boys. They made sudden jabs at one another fiercely, and with savage grimaces leaped at men standing with their backs turned, who wheeled round sharply and crossed bayonets and taunted the attackers. Then they lunged at the hanging sacks, stabbing them where the red circles were painted. These inanimate things became revoltingly lifelike as they jerked to and fro, and the bayonet men seemed enraged with them. One fell from the rope and a boy sprang at it, dug his bayonet in, put his foot on the prostrate thing to get a purchase for the bayonet, which he lunged out again, and then kicked the sack. "'That's what I like to see,' said an officer. "'There's a fine fighting spirit in that lad. He'll kill plenty of Germans before he's done.' Colonel Ronald Campbell was a great lecturer on bayonet exercise. He curdled the blood of boys with his eloquence on the method of attack to pierce liver and lights and kidneys of the enemy. He made their eyes bulge out of their heads, fired them with bloodlust, stoked up hatred of Germans, all in a quiet, earnest, persuasive voice, and a sense of latent power and passion in him. He told funny stories, one, famous in the army, called where's airy it was the story of an attack on german trenches in which a crowd of germans were captured in a dugout the sergeant had been told to blood his men and during the killing he turned round and asked where's airy airy hasn't had a go yet airy was a timid boy who shrank from butcher's work but he was called up and given his man to kill and after that airy was like a man-eating tiger in his desire for german blood he used another illustration in his bayonet lectures. You may meet a German who says, Mercy, I have ten children. Kill him. He might have ten more. At those training schools of British youth, when nature was averse to human slaughter until very scientifically trained, one might see every form of instruction and every kind of weapon and instrument of death. Machine guns, trench mortars, bombs, torpedoes, gas, and later on, tanks and as the months passed and the years the youth of the british empire graduated in these schools of war and those who lived longest were experts in diverse branches of technical education colonel ronald campbell retired from bayonet instruction and devoted his genius and his heart which was bigger than the point of a bayonet to the physical instruction of the army and the recuperation of battle-worn men i liked him better in that job and saw the real imagination of the man at work 
and his amazing self-taught knowledge of psychology. When men came down from the trenches, dazed, sullen, stupid, dismal, broken, he set to work to build up their vitality again, to get them interested in life again, and to make them keen and alert. As they had been dehumanized by war, so he rehumanized them by natural means. He had a farm with flowers and vegetables, pigs, poultry, and queer beasts. A tame bear named Flanagan was the comic character of the camp. Colonel Campbell found a thousand qualities of character in this animal, and brought laughter back to gloomy boys by his description of them. He had names for many of his pets, the gamecocks and the mother hens, and he taught the men to know each one, and to rear chicks and tend flowers and grow vegetables. Love, and not hate, was now his gospel. All his training was done by games, simple games arousing intelligence, leading up to elaborate games demanding skill of hand and eye. He challenged the whole army system of discipline imposed by authority by a new system of self-discipline based upon interest and instinct. His results were startling, and men who had been dumb, blear-eyed, dejected, shell-shocked wrecks of life were changed quite quickly into bright, cheery fellows with laughter in their eyes. "'It's a pity,' he said. "'They have to go off again and be shot to pieces. "'I cure them only to be killed. "'But that's not my fault. "'It's the fault of war.' "'It was Colonel Campbell who discovered Willie Woodbine, "'the fighting parson and soldier's poet, "'who was the leading member of a traveling troop of thick-eared thugs. "'They gave pugilistic entertainments to tired men. "'Each of them had one thick ear. "'Willie Woodbine had two. They fought one another with science, as old professionals, and challenged any man in the crowd. Then one of them played the violin and drew the soul out of the soldiers, who seemed mere animals, and after another fight Willie Woodbine stepped up and talked of God and war and the weakness of men and the meaning of courage. He held all those fellows in his hand, put a spell on them, kept them excited by a new revelation, gave them, poor devils, an extra touch of courage to face the menace that was ahead of them when they went to the trenches again. Chapter 11 Our men were not always in the trenches. As the new army grew in numbers, reliefs were more frequent than in the old days, when battalions held the line for long spells until their souls as well as their bodies were sunk in squalor. Now in the summer of 1915 it was not usual for men to stay in the line for more than three weeks at a stretch and they came back to camps and billets where there was more sense of life, though still the chance of death from long-range guns. Farther back still, as far back as the coast, and all the way between the sea and the edge of the war, there were new battalions quartered in French and Flemish villages, so that every cottage and farmstead, villa and chateau was inhabited by men in khaki, who made themselves at home and established friendly relations with civilians there, unless they were too flagrant in their robbery, or too sour in their temper, or too filthy in their habits. Generally the British troops were popular in Picardy and Artois, and when they left women kissed and cried in spite of laughter, and joked in a queer jargon of English-French. In the estimant of France and Flanders they danced with frowsy peasant girls to the tune of a penny in a slot piano, or failing the girls danced with one another. For many years to come, perhaps for centuries, those cottages and barns into which our men crowded will retain signs and memories of that British occupation in the Great War. 
boys who afterward went forward to the fighting fields and stepped across the line to the world of ghosts carved their names on wooden beams and on the whitewashed walls scribbled legends proclaiming that private john johnson was a bastard or that a certain battalion was a rabble of ruffians or that kaiser bill would die on the gallows illustrating those remarks with portraits and allegorical devices sketchily drawn but vivid and significant the soldier in the house learned quite a lot of french with which he made his needs understood by the elderly woman who cooked for his officer's mess he could say with a fine fluency où est le blooming cotou or donnez-moi la balle fourchette s'il vous plaît madame it was not beyond his vocabulary to explain that les pommes de terre frites are absolument all right if only madame will tenir ses chevaux on in the courtyards of ancient farmhouses so old in their timbers and gables that the scottish bodyguard of louis the eleventh may have passed them on their way to paris young scots with khaki-covered kilts pumped up the water from old wells and whistled i know a lassie to a girl who bought the cattle home and munched their evening rations while sandy played a wee bit on the pipes to the peasant folk who gathered at the gate such good relations existed between the cottagers and their temporary guests that one day for instance when a young friend of mine came back from a long spell in the trenches his conversation was of dead men flies bombs lice and hell the old lady who had given him her best bedroom at the beginning of the war flung her arms about him and greeted him like a long-lost son to a young guardsman with his undeveloped mustache on his upper lip her demonstrations were embarrassing it was one of the paradoxes of the war that beauty lived but a mile or two away from hideous squalor while men in the lines lived in dugouts and marched down communicating trenches thigh-high after rainy weather in mud and water and suffered the beastliness of the primitive earthmen those who were out of the trenches turn and turn about came back to leafy villages and drilled in fields all golden with buttercups and were not too uncomfortable in spite of overcrowding in dirty barns there was more than comfort in some of the headquarters where our officers were billeted in french chateau there was a splendor of surroundings which gave a graciousness and elegance to the daily life of that extraordinary war in which men fought as brutally as in prehistoric times i knew scores of such places and went through gilded gates emblazoned with noble coats of arms belonging to the days of the sung king or farther back to the valois and on my visits to generals and their staffs stood on long flights of steps which led up to old mansions with many towers and turrets surrounded by noble parks and ornamental waters and deep barns in which five centuries of harvests had been stored from one of the archways here one might see in the mind's eye mademoiselle de pompadour come out with a hawk on her wrist or even henri de navarre with his gentlemen in arms all their plumes alight in the sun as they mounted their horses for a morning's boar hunt it was surprising at first when a young british officer came out and said top in morning or any news from the dardanelles there was something incongruous about this habitation of french chateau by british officers with their war kit the strangest of it made me laugh in early days of first impressions when i went through the rooms of one of those old historic houses well within range of the german guns with a brigadier-major 
It was the Chateau de Honnicourt, near Albert. This is the general's bedroom, said the brigadier major, opening the door, which led off a gallery, in which many beautiful women of France and many great nobles of the old regime looked down from their gilt frames. The general had a nice bed to sleep in. In such a bed, Mademoiselle de Berry might have stretched her arms and yawned, or the beautiful Duchesse de Mazarin might have held her morning levee. A British general, with his bronze face and bristly moustache, would look a little strange under that blue silk canopy, with rosy cherubs dancing overhead on the flowered ceiling. His top-boots and spurs stood next to the Louis Quinze toilet-table. His leather belts and field-glasses lay on the polished boards beneath the tapestry on which Venus wooed Adonis, and Diana went a-hunting. In other rooms, no less elegantly rose-tinted or darkly panelled, other officers made a litter of their bags, haversacks, rubber baths, trench-boots, and putties. At night the staff sat down to dinner in a salon, where the portraits of a great family of France, in silks and satins and pompadour wigs, looked down upon their khaki. The owner of the chateau, in whose veins flowed the blood of those old aristocrats, was away with his regiment in which he held the rank of corporal. His wife, the Comtesse de Honnicourt, managed the estate, from which all the men-servants except the veterans had been mobilized. In her own chateau she kept one room for herself, and every morning came in from the dairies, where she had been working with her maids, to say, with her very gracious smile, to the invaders of her house, Bonjour, messieurs. Ça va bien? She hid any fear she had under the courage of her smile. Poor Chateau of France! German shells came to knock down their painted turrets, to smash through the ceilings where the rosy cupids played, and in one hour or two to ruin the beauty that had lived through centuries of pride. Scores of them along the line of battle were but heaps of brick dust and twisted iron. I saw the ruins of the Chateau de Honnicourt two years after my first visit there. The enemy's lines had come closer to it, and it was a target for their guns. Our guns, heavy and light, were firing from the backyard and neighboring fields with deafening tumult. Shells had already broken the roofs and turrets of the chateau and torn away great chunks of wall. A colonel of artillery had his headquarters in the Petit Salon. His hand trembled as he greeted me. "'I'm not fond of this place,' he said. The whole damned thing will come down on my head at any time. I think I shall take to the cellars. He walked out to the courtyard and showed me the way down to the vault. A shell came over the chateau and burst in the outhouses. They knocked out a 9.2 a little while ago, said the colonel. Made a mess of some heavy gunners. There was a sense of imminent death about us, but it was not so sinister a place as farther on, where a brother of mine sat in a hole directing his battery. The Countess of Enoncourt had gone. She went away with her dairymaids, driving her cattle down the roads. CHAPTER Twelve. One of the most curious little schools of courage inhabited by British soldiers in early days was the village of Vaux-sur-Somme, which we took over from the French, who were our next-door neighbors at the village of Frise in the summer of 1915. After the foul conditions of the salient, it seemed unreal and fantastic, with a touch of romance not found in other places. 
Strange as it seemed, the village garrisoned by our men was in advance of our trench lines, with nothing dividing them from the enemy but a little undergrowth, and the queerest part of it all was the sense of safety, the ridiculously false security with which one could wander about the village and up the footpath beyond, with the knowledge that one's movements were being watched by German eyes, and that the whole place could be blown off the face of the earth, but for the convenient fact that the Germans, who were living in the village of Curlew, beyond the footpath, were under our own observation and at the mercy of our own guns. That sounded like a fairy tale to men who, in other places, could not go over the parapet of the first-line trenches or even put their heads up for a single second without risking instant death. I stood on a hill here with a French interpreter and one of his men. A battalion of loyal North Lancashires was some distance away, but after an exchange of compliments in an idyllic glade, where a party of French soldiers lived in the friendliest juxtaposition with the British infantry surrounding them, it was a cheery bivouac among the trees, with the fragrance of a stew-pot mingling with the odor of burning wood. The lieutenant insisted upon leading the way to the top of the hill. He made a slight detour to point out a German shell which had fallen there without exploding, and made laughing comments upon the harmless, futile character of those poor Germans in front of us. They did their best to kill us, but oh, so feebly. Yet when I took a pace toward the shell he called out sharply, Ne touchez pas. I would rather have touched a sleeping tiger than that conical piece of metal with its unexploded possibilities, but bent low to see the inscriptions on it, scratched by French gunners with war recklessness of death. Mort au Bosch was scrawled upon it between the men's initials. Then we came to the hill crest and to the last of our trenches, and standing there looked upon the villages of Vaux and Curlew, separated by a piece of marshy water. In the farthest village were the Germans, and in the nearest, just below us, down the steep cliff, our own men. Between the two there was a narrow causeway across the marsh and a strip of woods half a rifle shot in length. Behind, in a sweeping semicircle round their village and ours, were the German trenches and the German guns. I looked into the streets of both villages as clearly as one may see into Cloverly village from the crest of the hill. In Vaux-sur-Somme, a few British soldiers were strolling about. One was sitting on a window-sill of a cottage, kicking up his heels. In the German village of Curlew, the roadways were concealed by the perspective of the houses, with their gables and chimney-stacks, so that I could not see any passers-by. But at the top of the road, going out of the village and standing outside the last house on the road, was a solitary figure, a German sentry. The French lieutenant pointed to a thin mast away from the village on the hillside. Do you see that? That is their flagstaff. They hoist their flag for victories. It wagged a good deal during a recent Russian fighting, but lately they have not had the cheek to put it up. This interpreter, the Baron de Rosen, laughed heartily at that naked pole on the hill. Then I left him and joined our men, and went down a steep hill into Vaux well outside our line of trenches, and thrust forward as an outpost in the marsh. German eyes could see me as I walked. At any moment those little houses about me might have been smashed into rubbish heaps, but no shells came to disturb the waterfowl among the reeds around. And so it was that the life in this place was utterly abnormal, and while the guns were silent except for long-range fire, an old-fashioned mode of war, what the adjutant of this little outpost called 
a gentlemanly warfare prevailed officers and men slept within a few hundred yards of the enemy and the officers wore their pajamas at night when a fight took place it was a chivalrous excursion such as sir walter manny would have liked between thirty or forty men on one side against somewhat the same number on the other our men used to steal out along the causeway which crossed the marsh a pathway about four feet wide broadening out in the middle so that a little redoubt or blockhouse was established there then across a narrow drawbridge then along a path again until they came to the thicket which screened the german village of curlew it sometimes happened that a party of germans were creeping forward from the other direction in just the same way disguised in party-colored clothes splashed with greens and reds and browns to make them invisible between the trees with brown masts over their faces then suddenly contact was made into the silence of the wood came the sharp crack of rifles the zip-zip of bullets the shouts of men who had given up the game of invisibility it was a sharp encounter one night when the loyal north lancashires held the village of vaux and our men brought back many german helmets and other trophies as proof of victory then to bed in the village and a good night's rest as when english knights fought the french not far from these fields as chronicled in the pages of that early war correspondent sir john frosout all was quiet when i went along the causeway and out into the wood where the outposts stood listening for any crack of a twig which might betray a german footstep i was startled when i came suddenly upon two men almost invisible against the tree trunks there they stood motionless with their rifles ready peering through the brushwood if i had followed the path on which they stood for just a little way i should have walked into the german village but on the other hand i should not have walked back again when i left the village and climbed up the hill to our own trenches again i laughed aloud at the fantastic visit to that grim little outpost in the marsh if all the war had been like this it would have been more endurable for men who had no need to hide in holes in the earth nor crouch for three months below ground until an hour or two of massacre below a storm of high explosives in the village on the marsh men fought at least against other men and not against invisible powers which belched forth death it was part of the french system of keeping quiet until the turn of big offensives a good system to my mind if not carried too far at frise next door to vaux in a loop of the somme it was carried a little too far with relaxed vigilance it was a joke of our soldiers to crawl on and through the reeds and enter the french line and exchange souvenirs with the sentries souvenir said one of them one day bullet you know cartouche comprenez a French poilu of territorials, who had been dozing, sat up with a grin and said, Mais oui, mon vieux, and felt in his pouch for a cartridge, and then in his pockets, and then in a magazine of a rifle between his knees. Fini, he said. Tout fini, mon petit camarade. The Germans one day made a pounce on Frise, that little village in the loop of the Somme, and pinched every man of the French garrison. There was devil to pay and I heard it being played to the tune of the French soixante-quinze, slashing over the trees. Vaux and Curlew went the way of all French villages in the zone of war when the Battle of the Somme began, and were blown off the map. Chapter 13 At a place called the Pont de Nippe, beyond Amentires, a most unhealthy place in later years of war, 
A bathing establishment was organized by officers who were as proud of their work as though they had brought a piece of paradise to Flanders. To be fair to them, they had done that. To any interested visitor, understanding the nobility of their work, they exhibited a curious relic. It was the holy shirt of Nieppe, which should be treasured as a memorial in our war museum, an object lesson of what the great war meant to clean living men. It was not a saint's shirt, but had been worn by a British officer in the trenches, and was like tens of thousands of other shirts worn by our officers and men in the first winters of the war, neither better nor worse, but a fair average specimen. It had been framed in a glass case and revealed on its linen the corpses of thousands of lice. That vermin swarmed upon the bodies of our men who went into the trenches and tortured them. After three days they were lousy from head to foot. After three weeks they were walking menageries. To English boys from clean homes, to young officers who had been brought up in the religion of the morning tub, this was one of the worst horrors of war. They were disgusted with themselves. Their own bodies were revolting to them. Scores of times I have seen battalions of men just out of battle stripping themselves and hunting in their shirts for the foul beast. They had a technical name for this hunter's job. They called it chatting. They desired a bath, as the heart panneth for the water brooks. The baths were but a mirage of the brain to men in Flanders fields and beyond the Somme, until here and there, as at Nieppe, officers with human sympathy organized a system by which battalions of men could wash their bodies the place in Nieppe had been a jute factory and there were big tubs in the sheds and nearby was the water of the lease boilers were set up going to heat the water battalion shirts were put into an oven and the lice were baked and killed it was a splendid thing to see scores of boys wallowing in those big tubs six in a tub with a bit of soap for each. They gave little grunts and shouts of joyous satisfaction. The cleansing water, the liquid heat, made their flesh tingle with exquisite delight, sensuous and spiritual. They were like children. They splashed one another with gargles of laughter. They put their heads under water and came up puffing and blowing like grampuses. Something broke in one's heart to see them, those splendid boys whose bodies might soon be torn to tatters by chunks of steel. One of them remembered a bit of Latin he had sung at Stonyhurst. Asperges me, Domine, hysopo et mandabor, lavabisme et suffernivam dil labador. Thou shalt sprinkle me with hysop, O Lord, and I shall be cleansed. Thou shalt wash me, and I shall be made whiter than snow. On the other side of the lines the Germans were suffering in the same way, lousy also, and they too were organizing bathhouses. After their first retreat, I saw a queer name on a wooden shed, Entlausungsanstalt. I puzzled over it for a moment, and then I understood. It was a new word created out of the dirt of modern war. Delousing Station. Chapter 14. It was harvest time in the summer of 15, and death was not the only reaper who went about the fields although he was busy and did not rest even when the sun had flamed down below the belt of trees on the far ridge and left the world in darkness. On a night in August two of us stood in a cornfield, silent, under the great dome, staring up at the startling splendor of it. The red ball showed above the far line of single trees, 
which were black as charcoal on the edge of a long straight road two miles away and from its furnace there were flung a million feathers of flame against the silk-blue canopy of the evening sky the burning colors died out in a few minutes and the fields darkened and all the corn shocks paled until they became quite white like rows of tents under the harvest moon another night had come in this year of war up ypres way the guns were busy and at regular intervals the earth trembled and the air vibrated with dull thunderous shocks the moon's face looks full of irony tonight said the man by my side it seems to say what fools those creatures are down there spoiling their harvest time with such a mess of blood the stars were very bright in some of those flemish nights i saw the milky way clearly tracked across the dark desert the pallades and orion's belt were like diamonds on black velvet but among all these worlds of light other stars unknown to astronomers appeared and disappeared on the road back from a french town one night i looked arras way and saw what seemed a bursting planet it fell with a scatter of burning pieces then suddenly the thick cloth of the night was rent with stabs of light as though flashing swords were hacking it and a moment later a finger of white fire was traced along the black edge of the far-off woods so that the whole sky was brightened for a moment and then was blotted out by a deeper darkness arras was being shelled again as i saw it many times in those long years of war the darkness of all the towns in the war zone was rather horrible their strange intense quietude when the guns were not at work made them dead as the very spirit of a town dies on the edge of war one night as on many others i walked through one of them with a friend every house was shuttered and hardly a gleam came through any crack no footstep save our own told of life the darkness was almost palpable it seemed to press against one's eyeballs like a velvet mask my nerves were so on edge with the sense of the uncanny silence and invisibility that i started violently at the sound of a quiet voice speaking three inches from my ear halte qui va là it was a french sentry who stood with his back to the wall of a house in such a gulf of blackness that not even his bayonet was revealed by a glint another day of war came the old beauty of the world was there close to the lines of the bronzed cornfields splashed with the scarlet of poppies and the pale yellow of the newly cut sheaves stretching away and away without the break of a hedge to the last slopes which met the sky i stood in some of those harvest fields staring across to a slope of rising ground where there was no ripening wheat and where the grass itself came to a sudden halt as though afraid of something i knew the reason of this and of the long white lines of earth thrown up for miles each way those were the parapets of german trenches and in the ditches below them were earthmen armed with deadly weapons staring out across the beauty of france and wondering perhaps why they should be here to mar it and watching me a little black dot in their range of vision with an idle thought as to whether it were worth while to let a bullet loose and end my walk they could have done so easily but did not bother no shot or shell came to break through the hum of bees or to crash through the sigh of the wind 
which was bending all the ears of corn to listen to the murmurous insect life in these fields of france close to me was a group of peasants a study for a painter like millet one of them shouted out to me voilà le boche waving his arms to left and right and then shaking a clenched fist at them a sturdy girl with a brown throat showing through an open bodice munched an apple like audrey in as you like it and between her bites told me that she had had a brother killed in the war and that she had been nearly killed herself a week ago by shells that came bursting all round her as she was tying up her sheaves she pointed to great holes in the field and described the coming of the germans into her village over there when she had lied to some uhlans about the whereabouts of french soldiers and given one of those fat germans a blow on the face when he had tried to make love to her in her father's barn her mother had been raped in further fields out of the view of the german trenches but well within shell range the harvesting was being done by french soldiers one of them was driving the reaping machine and looked like a gunner on his limber with his kepi thrust to the back of his head the trousers of his comrades were as red as the poppies that grew on the edge of the wheat and three of these poilus had ceased their work to drink out of a leather wine bottle which had been replenished from a handcart it was a pretty scene if one could forget the grim purpose which put those harvesters in uniform same thought was in the mind of a british officer a beautiful country this he said it's a pity to cut it up with trenches and barbed wire battalions of new army men were being reviewed but a furlong or two away from that invisible man who was wielding a scythe which had no mercy for unripe wheat out of those lines of eyes stared the courage of men's souls not shirking the next ordeal it was through red ears of corn in that summer of fifteen that one found one's way to many of the trenches that marked the boundary lines of the year's harvesting and in belgium by kemmel hill the shells of our batteries answered by german guns came with their long-drawn howls of murder across the heads of peasant women who were gleaning with bent backs in plug street wood the trees had worn thin under showers of shrapnel but the long avenues between the trenches were cool and pleasant in the heat of day it was one of the elementary schools where many of our soldiers learned the abc of actual warfare after their training at camps behind the lines here one might sport with amaryllis in the shade but for the fact that country wenches were not allowed in the dugouts and trenches where i found our soldiers killing flies in the intervals between pot shots at german periscopes the enemy was engaged presumably in the same pursuit of killing time and life with luck and sniping was hot on both sides so that the wood resounded with sharp reports as though hard filbert nuts were being cracked by giant teeth each time i went there one of our men was hit by a sniper and his body was carried off for burial as i went toward the first line of trenches hoping that my shadow would not fall across a german periscope the sight of that dead body passing chilled one a little there were many graves in the bosky arbors eighteen under one mound but some of those who had fallen six months before still lay where the gleaners could not reach them i used to peer through the leaves of plug street wood at no man's land between the lines where every creature had been killed by the sweeping flail of machine-guns and shrapnel 
Along the harvest fields there were many barren territories like that, and up by Hooge, along the edge of the fatal crater, and behind the stripped trees of Zouave wood, there was no other gleaning to be had but that of broken shells and shrapnel bullets and a litter of limbs. CHAPTER Fifteen. For some time the War Office would not allow military bands at the front, not understanding that music was like water to parched souls. By degrees, divisional generals realized the utter need of entertainment among men dulled and dazed by the routines of war, and encouraged variety shows organized by young officers who had been amateur actors before the war, who searched around for likely talent. There was plenty of it in the new army, including professional funny men, trick cyclists, conjurers, and singers of all kinds. So by the summer of fifteen, most of the divisions had their dramatic entertainments. The follies, the bow-bells, the jocks, the pipsqueaks, the whiz-bangs, the diamonds, the brass hats, the very lights, and many others with fancy names. I remember going to one of the first of them in the village of Ausch a few miles from the German lines. It was held in an old sugar factory, and I shall long remember the impressions of the place, with seven or eight hundred men sitting in the gloom of that big broken barn-like building where strange bits of machinery looked through the darkness, and where, through gashes in the walls, stars twinkled. There was a smell of clay and moist sugar and tarpaulins and damp khaki and chloride of lime, very pungent in one's nostrils and when the curtain went up on a well-fitted stage, and the Follies began their performance, the squalor of the place did not matter. What mattered was the enormous whimsicality of the bombardier at the piano, and the outrageous comicality of the tousle-haired soldier with a red nose, who described how he had run away from Mons with the rest of you, and the light-heartedness of the performance which could have gone straight to a London music-hall and brought down the house with jokes and songs made up in dugouts and front-line trenches. At first the audience sat silent, with glazed eyes. It was difficult to get a laugh out of them. The mud of the trenches was still on them. They stank of the trenches, and the stench was in their souls. Presently they began to brighten up. Life came back into their eyes. They laughed. Later, from this audience of soldiers, there were yells of laughter, though the effect of shells arriving in unexpected moments, in untoward circumstances, was a favorite theme of the jesters. Many of the men were going into the trenches that night again, and there would be no fun in the noise of the shells. But they went more gaily, and with stronger hearts, I am sure, because of the laughter which had roared through the old sugar factory. A night or two later I went to another concert, and heard the same gaiety of men who had been through a year of war. It was in an open field, under a velvety sky studded with innumerable stars. Nearly a thousand soldiers trooped through the gates and massed before the little canvas theatre. In front a small crowd of Flemish children squatted on the grass, not understanding a word of the jokes, but laughing in shrill delight at the antics of Soldier Perrault. The corner man was a funny fellow, his by-play with a stout Flemish woman round the flap of the canvas screen to whom he made amorous advances while his comrades were singing sentimental ballads, was truly comic. The hit of the evening was when an Australian, behind the stage, 
gave an unexpected imitation of a laughing jackass. There was something indescribably weird and wild and grotesque in that prolonged cry of cackling unnatural mirth. An Australian by my side said, Well done, exactly right. And the Flemish children shrieked with joy without understanding the meaning of the noise. Old, old songs belonging to the early Victorian age were given by the soldiers, who had great emotion and broke down sometimes in the middle of a verse. There were funny men dressed in the Widow Twonky style, or in burlesque uniforms, who were greeted with yells of laughter by their comrades. An Australian giant played some clever card tricks, and another Australian recited Kipling's Gunga Din with splendid fire, and between every turn the soldiers in the field roared out a chorus, "'Jolly good song! Jolly well sung! If you can think of a better, you're welcome to try, but don't forget the singer is dry. Give the poor beggar some beer!' A touring company of mouth-organ musicians was having a great success in the war zone. But apart from all those organized methods of mirth, there was a funny man in every billet who played the part of court jester and clowned it, whatever the state of the weather or the risks of war. The British soldier would have his game of house or crown an anchor, even on the edge of the shell storm, and his little bit of sport, wherever there was room to stretch his legs. It was a jesting army, though some of its jokes were very grim and those who saw, as I did, the daily tragedy of war, never ceasing, always adding to the sum of human suffering, were not likely to discourage that sense of humor. A successful concert with mouth-organs, combs, and tissue paper, and penny-whistles was given by the guards in the front-line trenches near Luz. They played old English melodies, harmonized with great emotion and technical skill. It attracted an unexpected audience. The Germans crowded into their front line not far away and applauded each number. Presently, in good English, a German voice shouted across, Play Annie Laurie, and I will sing it. The guards played Annie Laurie, and a German officer stood up on the parapet. The evening sun was red behind him and sang the old song admirably with great tenderness. There was applause on both sides. Let's have another concert tomorrow, shouted the Germans. But there was a different kind of concert next day, and the music was played by trench mortars, mills bombs, rifle grenades, and other instruments of death in possession of the guards. There were cries of agony and terror from the German trenches, and young officers of the guards told the story as an amusing anecdote with loud laughter. End of section six.